Let us pray. Lord, we welcome you and we welcome these words. We pray that as we listen to you and as we watch you, Lord, the truth of who you are and what you're doing would just become more, more real to us, more uh, available, um, more easily um, incorporated through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Give us that grace this morning. In your name we pray, amen. One of the questions that we ask in Advent is, is an, a question of expectation. Advent is a season of expectation. And, uh, and so um, we're, we're exploring these texts of Jesus which, which are urgent. And some of them are hard. Um, I've learned a lot going through some of these texts this year. Um, they're difficult to understand sometimes for a lot of reasons. Some of them are just cultural. There are things in the text that takes us time to, to kind of get our arms around. But they're also a little bit challenging because they, they are urgent. They are unsettling in just a little bit uh, in, in, at times. And um, what my goal is always in, in preaching in general and also in these texts is to, to try to close the distance between us and Jesus or our perception of it, our perception of him, to, to try to make him uh, more clear, uh, more available to us because what we know of the gospel, which is Christ with us, Christ in us, the hope of glory, and so we always need to come to these texts, always with the expectation that Jesus is saying things for our benefit. He's not trying to create more distance, nor is he trying to make things more confusing. He's not trying to make us, see, he's not sowing seeds of more doubt. He's doing the opposite. So even if we come to a challenging text, we ought still to embrace that perspective that it's okay for us to kind of trust that Jesus is doing a good thing for us here. Um, Jesus, of course, was speaking to an audience that's somewhat like us in a lot of ways, but not exactly like us in a lot of ways either. And so sometimes uh, that accounts for some of the static or, 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 or challenge we have in interpreting Jesus' words. But uh, the question I, I, I really resonate with this morning is Jesus' question, which I wanna kind of ask us too, is uh, what are we looking for? I mean, apart from a bear's victory. I mean, what are we really looking for today? It's a great question which he asks several times in this text, and I want to let that resonate. It's a great Advent question. What are we expecting? So I want us to, in kind of faithfulness to what I had just said about really getting Jesus' motive in front of us, I want us to pay close attention at the beginning of the bookends of this text in Luke. And if you have your, your Bibles, you can open up to chapter 11 or you can follow along in the bulletin. But if you'll notice verse five, let's just hear what Jesus says, which is very good. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have a good news preached to them. Is that not a good word? Uh, do, do you find yourself in that category of people? <laughs> I do. We all do to some extent. And what does he say in verse 19 towards the, the end of the matter? Um, he says uh, that he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this is the Jesus that's speaking us today speaking to us. 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Are you a sinner? Yeah, I am. <laughs> He's a friend. He comes as a friend. Now, sometimes it's, it goes a little out of focus, doesn't it? Why is that? Um, it goes a little out of focus because our lives aren't so simple, right? We experience disappointing circumstances. We have a lot of complexity. Some things are working well and some things really aren't. Sometimes we have a deep feeling of unworthiness about ourselves. Sometimes we're just deeply afraid of change. We don't want change. And sometimes it's just a resistance to following, you know, obedience. It doesn't kind of roll off the tongue as a joyful sounding word, and yet it should, but it doesn't. And John is a little bit in this place himself where it's just gone a little bit out of focus. Um, now, it, even more so, Jesus is saying there are kinds of people in Israel at the time which are critics of Jesus' agenda. It's very important when we read the words of Jesus to do the best that we can, even if we don't have a lot of book learning and all that kind of stuff, to do the best we can, just to recognize that there are different kinds of people in the crowd. All right, so there are the tax collectors and the sinners, and, but, and then they're just ordinary old people, but then there are these critics, and Jesus has very harsh words for critics, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Okay, and, and, and he's bringing this message uh, to critics, especially here, um, and he's challenging and he's pressing a question. You've got your own agenda, and that's why you're upset with me, because my agenda is different than your agenda. And one thing Jesus is really great at doing is helping us kind of suss out, what is our agenda? Because often we don't know. We're just kind of going along. And then Jesus will say something that exposes the real, the real issue. You know, that rich young ruler, for example, who comes along and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, do all these things. And he says, oh, good for me. I've done all of them. And then Jesus says, oh, yeah, but uh, sell everything you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. And the guy went away really disappointed. Because Jesus put his finger on the thing for him. For him, okay? And that's the other thing is these are personal words. So we find John, John the Baptist. John's in prison. Now, interestingly, in, in Luke's gospel, we don't know why yet, all right? But we find out in Luke, in Luke chapter 14, verses 3 to 5, John gives us a little background. For Herod, the bad guy, has seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Okay, so his sister-in-law, because John had been saying to him this irritating thing, it is not lawful for you to have her. This apparently didn't please Herod, uh, and so he wanted to put him to death. That's one way of getting rid of your problems. But Herod feared the people because he's a politician, and the people, fear, and people held John up to be a prophet. So much like politics today. <laughs> um, so John, John's on the wrong side here, and... Uh, and and he's in prison. And these are not nice prisons. There's no television. John sends a question by his disciples to Jesus. Now, John's just not simply a doubter. I, I want to, I you know, John's a real person here. And he is, well, to put it mildly, a very substantial person. John's a serious man. He's a a profoundly devout man, and he's a leader. 
He's a leader of a whole community, a, a community that lasts after he dies. That's, you can read more about that in the New Testament. John was not an ordinary man. He was a robust and vigorous man, a leader, a serious and devout man. He is a prophet. And not just any old prophet. He was a prophet's prophet, the greatest of all prophets. He was full of prophetic imagination, prophetic vision. He, he was steeped in the prophetic texts. He, he embodied the prophetic tradition. He was in a community of prophets with other prophetic people. He was experienced. So John's not just simply any old ordinary person sitting in prison and doubting all of a sudden. It's not quite like that. J John is, a, is, a, um, is in, a, in a situation where he has developed a, a message of, of a certain kind, and that message you can read about uh, earlier in Luke. Um, where he's, he's saying uh, there's, uh, his message is one of wrath coming, one of purging. He says the winnowing fork is in his hands and, and the Messiah when he comes will gather the wheat and burn the chaff and it's time to repent. It's time to obey and to follow and many people did. And, and so in prison, whatever it is that he's feeling about himself personally and whatever it is that he's hearing about the ministry of Jesus, something's going a little out of focus for him. And he, he wants to verify, he wants to, he wants to keep aligned with what he thought to be true. And uh, I think that's an example for us too. This isn't a rush to doubt and skepticism. It's something that grows up out of an authentic understanding that we have about the way that God is. And when John sends the disciples to Jesus, he's not just simply a doubting Thomas, a guy who's skeptical and sitting on the sidelines. What he believes is true. And yet there's something about the activity of Jesus because Jesus is even greater than John that he can't quite fathom. And friends, that's not unusual when we follow the eternal creator of the universe. Like, in contrast, we're a, our perspective's a little bit less than that. <laughs> and we ought to expect that there are going to be times when we need clarity. It's not exactly an expression of doubt, although it could be, but it's more because God has told us something true, but we're losing a little bit of the sight of it. And so John sends this question, and we ought to ask similar questions. It's okay for us to ask questions. It's a sign that we're taking ourselves seriously. And sometimes it's hard to take ourselves seriously. But Jesus takes us seriously. Jesus takes what he's doing in us seriously, no matter what age we are. And this is a, a word for the, the child to the oldest person here. God's doing something in you, and you should take that seriously. And when it goes out of focus, ask. Say, God, I, I don't, I'm not connecting the dots. We have to acknowledge that. And, and, uh, and, and so John sends these people. And, um, and, and what, what, uh, what Jesus does is he treats John very, very graciously. 
because John's probably recalling some things about the scripture, as we all should. And as our readings were even this morning in Isaiah and in the Psalms, you'll hear things about this. He's coming to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's coming to set the captives free. That's part of the package of the Messiah. Um, Here's from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Lord has appointed the Messiah to bring good news to the poor. All right? It sounds kind of what Jesus is saying here. He has sent me, the Messiah, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Do you think John might have been hearing that in his own mind? Do you think he did not know these prophetic texts by absolute heart? And so Jesus gives him an answer. Jesus and his his disciples, they're alive with scripture in ways that we can hardly fathom. These scriptures are deeply situated in in the Jewish people, and especially in John. These aren't just academic texts, they ate them practically. They were part of his soul, and he fed on them. And they've embraced this expectation So John and his disciples, they're alive with scripture and they have this expectation and so they ask and they seek and where do they go with their question? They go right to the source. What a great example. They didn't just sit around and talk about it. John knew, I'm gonna go right to the source, the one person who can answer my quest and that's Jesus and so he sends his disciples and they are not turned away, they're not rebuked, Jesus doesn't give him a riddle. He doesn't make it more confusing. He doesn't cite things that are strange or foreign. Do you see how gracious this is? I mean, it may be a little bit hard for us to understand because we're not prophets. But imagine that you were John and his disciples and you asked a question about prophecy and what does Jesus answer? He answers from the prophets. How wonderful. It's so clear sometimes, you know, we miss these things. (laughs) To John's disciples, what better answer could there have been? What a blessing. What grace. What affirmation. What care. What attentiveness that Jesus had to receive this unique group of people. No one else on the planet could have done this but Jesus, to welcome this odd, powerful, dynamic, amazing group and to give them exactly what they needed. And that's what he's gonna do for you in your way with your question. Now, Jesus, though, has more than John. More what? More life, more perspective, more vision, more power, more purpose. He has more. And so you would expect that the answer that Jesus gives, and and I think many of us who have received answers from the Lord will be able to identify with this, it meets our need, but it expands us and stretches us at the same time. We have to be willing to do that. We have to be ready for that, open for that. Um, 
Jesus gives John what some of the, I hope this isn't a confusing phrase to some of you, but for some of you who've been in our, our Bible studies, it's a positive shame message. <laughs> a, a, a constructive but stretching challenge. Blessed are those who are not ashamed uh, by me. Is that a rebuke of John? I don't think so exactly, because let's, let's look at this text. He says, J- Jesus quotes this good news, and he says to uh, the disciples, and again, this is, not, this is not a riddle for them. This is very, this is language that they know. Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. Very important. Not only an idea, he said, I want you to go and, and tell John what you're seeing What a blessing for John. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have a good news preached to them. Now, that's not exactly what John was preaching. Now, it's not somehow opposed to what John is preaching, but if you listen to John's message was one of the coming wrath and judgment, and look, Jesus has that message too. So I don't want this to sound like Jesus kind of namby-pamby and doesn't understand that there's a moment of judgment coming. He preaches about that as well. But to John, he puts a point of emphasis on a dimension of the coming kingdom that he wants John to incorporate into something of, of his own nature. He wants John to see other dimensions, not a, con- not a conflict, again, because Jesus does also preach about the wrath to come. This isn't a rebuke of John. It's a stretching of his vision. It's a stretching of his vision. And do you know, this is just conjecture, but I think John was thrilled. Because when Jesus quotes those scriptures, to a person like John who knows the Bible that well, it's like a door opening. It's like all the words of those texts resonate to John and they feed his soul, I'm sure of it. He didn't say, what on earth is Jesus talking about? Jesus is pulling from a well of water, of of prophetic imagination, and he says, John, I want you to drink from this, and John does, I know he does. Now his disciples, well that's another story, I won't get into all that. It's just the point is that Jesus is going to take John's question and he's going to lift it up into a higher dimension and that's what he's going to do with you too. You think you're asking one question and Jesus is going to answer that question but he's going to give you more and sometimes the stretching is not very comfortable because Jesus did not say to John the the jail cell is going to open for you because it didn't. Not to be too gruesome, but the first part to leave that cell was John's head, if you want to know the end of the story. His body would follow separately. (laughs) It's not exactly the answer John was probably looking for. Jesus did not treat him like a child and say, oh, it's all going to come out just fine. In fact, I don't think John was even looking for that. Jesus didn't say the jail door is going to swing wide open for you. I'm going to leave that part out of my quote that's going to be absent, and I'll bet John heard the absence. But what, John, what Jesus gave John fed his soul. We're going to hear words like that. 
we're going to pray prayers that Jesus will answer, but maybe just a little differently, but he's not going to leave us in the dark about it. That's the sense of expectation. That's the, the risk of faith to bring those questions to God and say, God, I'm afraid that the answer that you're going to give me is going to leave something out. And it might. But what will be replaced by it is the presence of God eternal who sees the beginning and the end. And that's what we trust. So that's how Jesus comes to John. And then he turns to the crowd and he says to them, what were you expecting? What were you coming here to see? Why are you here? Why are you standing here? The disciples, by the way, are not in this pa passage. They've already been sent out on another mission. This is just a crowd. And Jesus is talking to this crowd and he's saying, what did you come out to see? Now remember, the people loved John and they, they were watching Jesus with John's disciples. And I wonder what they were thinking. And Jesus kind of affirms him, look, you didn't come out to see, you didn't waste your time. Like nobody goes out into the wilderness to see reeds bending in, in the wind. You didn't come out to see silliness, you know, clownish expressions that you only see in the, in, you know, in the court. You came out to see something real, a real prophet. And in fact, Jesus says, and he is a real prophet. He's like the prophet Elijah. Now that's really important because the very last passage in the Bible it uh, references Elijah, and it said there's going to be, Elijah is going to be coming. If you look in the last chapter of Malachi, um, if I could read my notes, I'd find it for you. It's in here somewhere. Um, but in Malachi, uh, here it is. Behold, I will send you, this is the last verse of the Old Testament, for Christians anyway. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And Jesus says, yes, that is John. That's what you came out to see. You actually came out to see a prophet that was greater than you could have imagined. Jack, John actually is Elijah and his mission's complete. And that too would be a masterful blessing to, to John because John will know either in this world or the next that he did his job. He succeeded. Behind his wildest imagination he succeeded because he wasn't there to see the death and resurrection of Jesus. When, whenever that light turned on for John, when he saw exactly what God did, he will have been as blown away as you and me. And that's why Jesus could say, as great as John is, the least in the kingdom is greater. What does he mean by that? It means that we have access to something that John did not. John was the end of an era. He was the last of the great prophets. And do you know what? In a certain way, John was saved by faith, just like you and me. There's no difference. That's what Jesus is saying. Those disciples had to go, go back and preach the gospel to John, and preach they did, and he had to be saved by the same faith that you and I are saved by. The least in the new era of the new kingdom is greater than that era the author of Hebrews says that the prophets, they, they, they looked down, they, could, they were envisioning this day that we're in, and they could hardly have imagined it. So Jesus is asking the crowds, hey, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Have you given up interest? 
Are you able to frame your question for Jesus the way that the disciples of John did? Or have you no questions at all, crowd? Are you just kind of curious bystanders? Is there no question urging you forward in your life of faith? Is nothing causing you to say, God, what's happening? Who are you? Where are you? What are you doing in my life with this particular issue? Is there nothing that's bringing you with curiosity to to someone who says, I can do it? I can be your Lord and your Savior? I think he's urging the crowd on not to think about this in abstractions. The abstraction of a shaky reed in the wind, the abstraction of men in fine clothing. No, these are real issues. And do you not have real problems? Do you not have real issues in your life and real questions? And Jesus urging them forward and saying, look, look guys, the difference is I'm not here to give abstract answers to your kind of like, I'm not a horoscope, you know? I'm not a Chinese fortune cookie. I'm actually doing something. And that's where we get this very strange verse in, uh, in chapter uh, 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> right? Okay, one thing that Jesus is always going to do, and this can be unsettling, is he's a man of action. Now, Jesus attunes to us, and I'll, I'm going to touch on that at the end, okay? I'm not saying that Jesus is just endlessly making our lives chaotic. That's not what I'm talking about. But, but Jesus has come to do something. He's not ambivalent about you and about your life. And, and that's something to just be made aware of that, you know, there's this verse in, in Hebrews again where he says the Lord disciplines those that he loves. Right? So he's not ambivalent about you. He's not just kind of an innocent bystander, and he doesn't appeal to innocent bystanders. Innocent bystanders who are just kind of curious, they don't like Jesus. They find him very irritating. It's the needy who love Jesus because they need something, and what they need is something, someone to do something. And that's more what it feels like to be around Jesus is he's going to do something for you. He's going to do something in you, not without grace, not without mercy, not without care, not by overwhelming, but he is a man of action. And uh, there's a verse that I think helps interpret this one for those of you who are curious about this violent language. Okay, it actually comes from another Old Testament pro- prophet called, uh, whose name is Micah. And Micah is uh, towards the end of Israel's history, about, I don't know, 500 years before Jesus or so. And, and Micah has a vision of what's to come, and this is what he says. This is a prophet before Jesus. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. He's speaking to, to the nation of Israel. And, and at this time, by the way, when Micah is speaking, is after... The Israel, the, uh, it's after Israel has been kicked out of the land. Okay, you know, there's this phase after they had their kingdoms, they get kicked out, out of the pool. And now they're scattered between Egypt and Babylon, and it's a trauma, okay? And Micah is one of those prophets that speaks to the people outside of the land, and he says, I will gather the remnant of Israel, 
I will set them together, Micah said, this is God speaking through Micah, I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of people. I kind of like that. I feel like that. (laughs) Now, this is the important part. He who opens the breach goes up before them. You know what a breach is? It's an obstacle. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. The king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. So I want you to imagine this flock of noisy people, (laughs) and they're stuck by this obstacle, by this breach. And what Micah foresees is that there's someone who will open the breach there's someone who's going to press through that obstacle. They're going to they're gonna blow it out. And when that happens, all that pent-up energy and frustration and energy and hope and dynamic power in that flock, it pushes through. Do you see, do you see the sense of energy in that? And who's at the head of it? Who's at the head of this noisy mob of sheep that, that are so euphoric to be unleashed and set forth into the pasture. It's the Messiah who's at the head of that whole mess. He's the one that's having the most fun because he's at the head of this mob of people who just were, they could not wait to be set free and can you not wait to be set free? Do you not feel the pressure sometimes of just of living like this in this life? It's not always so easy. Things don't get tied up. There's a weight of depression. There's mistakes that we've made. There's there's a potential that we didn't have and there's a a weight to this. And, and, And if you could see on the other side and you can see that place where everything's made new and between you and that is an obstacle, you would want that breach removed. That's John. That's why he's the greatest. Like no other prophet before it, he opened that breach. And what did he do? He held it open. And, and he let the Messiah go first. That's a marvelous thing. That's why John said, those of you who know the story, I must decrease so that he would increase because he knew that that's what his mission was. Violent is kind of a funny translation of it, but you see the energy of it. It's the breaking forth of the people of God into the promised land, and the Messiah is leading the parade. That's why people thought he was a glutton and a drunkard, because he's just having so much fun. He loves to do this, and he will. That's the energy of God in your life. I had a professor in seminary who was German, and uh, he said he always wondered about this phrase in theology called irresistible grace. It's kind of a technical term, grace that is irresistible. And he said it came through to me when I stood at the gate of Auschwitz looking in. And I went in, and I went through that horrible experience and as I walked back out the gate and I could see beyond it, I thought about this phrase, grace that's irresistible. That has struck with me ever since I heard that story and I thought that must be what it feels like to want out. And in a certain way, the gospel is the promise of being let out 
and, and there are so many places in our hearts and our lives that are trapped, that are unreconciled to the truth. It's too good to be true. I feel it all the time. I just say, Lord, I feel like I, feel like I just I can't take it all in. It, I, 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 I want to expand to what you're offering me as a free gift, but I, I can hardly do it. And, and you know what? That's why we have the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit does things for us and in us that we can't do for ourselves so that we can receive this much grace so that we can believe something that's too good to be true. The, the poor have the good news preached to them. And so Jesus is not letting the crowd get away with disinterested curiosity. He, he says, what were you looking for? We, 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 we played the flute and, we didn't, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. What, what is it that you're looking for, Jesus says. And by the way, in terms of that not being overwhelmed, you know, if you're in sorrow, it's a nice thing to have a dirge, to be able to express your mourning in a time of grief. And if you're celebrating, it's a great thing to have a flute, to play and to dance. And Jesus has offered those things together. He mourns with those who mourn and he rejoices with those who rejoice. And for those who had ears to hear and eyes to see, do you not think that they were not part of that parade? Do you not think that the dead man raised up and the leper that was cured and the lame that could walk and the blind that could see and the poor that were made rich in Christ, do you not think that they were partying big time? A glutton and a drunkard, they said of Jesus, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Thank God. Yet, he says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Wisdom is a, a name for God. God will be justified. And we, we will all see it to be true. Jesus actually ends this whole sermon in chapter 11 with the very famous words of invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is not trying to speak in riddles. He's not trying to confuse us but he is a God. He is the God. The creator of the universe. The lion of Judah. He has no competitors. He has no enemies. He has no fear and he lives within us through the Holy Spirit. And he is inviting us now to say, what are you looking for? He's wanting you to identify it and to come to you as the answer. He is preparing a way and he will walk in it and you will follow him and you will go through the breach into the promised land and all the things that you're praying for. I don't know how the Lord will answer them. John did not leave jail alive but I think he left jail satisfied. And in fact, when he got to heaven and saw what God did, it blew his mind, and he'll blow our minds too. So let's not be afraid. Let's welcome the activity of Jesus in our lives. Let's ask ourselves, what are we looking for? What do we want? And let's hear him speak to us about that. Amen.